Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, your host here on Last Week in the Church, the show where we harvest the fruits of the last week of journalistic gold mining on the Vatican beat. Here's what we've got for you. We begin with angling for interviews. Pope Francis gave another major media interview this past week in which he channeled his inner Sharon Angle, looking to answer only those questions he actually wanted to answer. We'll explain why this interview came replete with a great candidate for the most obvious, unasked follow-up question of 2023. Second, to invert the Beatles classic, we've got, you say hello, I say Dubai. The Pope confirms that he's going to Dubai for the COP28 Climate Change Summit, December 1st through the 3rd. We'll explain why this is a kind of high-stakes enterprise on the part of the Pope and what he hopes to achieve. Third, we've got engaging Iran. So, the war between Israel and Hamas and the Gaza Strip is grinding on. In the middle of all of that, we're going to unpack why relations between the Vatican and the Islamic Republic of Iran is not only one of the more interesting bits of subtext, but potentially also one of the more consequential. And then finally this week, we've got church and state. So there is no place on the planet where the relationships between church and state are more complex and often more comical than they are here in Italy, I am going to tick off four brief vignettes that explain why relations between throne and altar here in Il Bel Paese, they may be silly, they may be ridiculous, but they are never dull. All that and more is waiting for you on this episode of Last Week in the Church, so I beg you on bended knee, do not go anywhere. This is stuff you are going to want to know. This is our official Last Week in the Church infomercial because I come to you with a special offer for all of those would-be Catholic eggheads out there. That is, if you're the kind of person who likes sounding smart, who likes creating the impression that you know things other people don't, that certainly describes me. If that describes you, you're going to want to know about this. Now, I've already spoken about this new app, this new online resource called Magisterium AI. Basically, what it allows you to do is to type in a question like, what does it mean that the Pope is infallible? Or what does the Catholic Church teach about the environment? Or, you know, whatever. And it will give you a short, smart, easily digestible answer based on more than 5,000 official magisterial texts. But recently, these guys have created a new feature on the app. It's called the scholarly mode which draws not just on official texts, but also the best and brightest of Catholic thinkers and theologians over the centuries, from Augustine and Aquinas to more contemporary figures. And we'll also give you a very quick answer about what those folks have had to say about what the church teaches on various issues. Now, I promise you that if you try this once, you're going to wonder how in God's name you ever lived without it. It's brought to you by our friends at Longbeard. They are the digital marketing design company that provide the IT backbone for Crux. They provide the same service for a slew of other Catholic organizations and outfits. They are they're brilliant, and they are creative, and they are tremendous. And I'm kind of out of adjectives 
at this point, which is saying something because I traffic in adjectives, but I am telling you, these people are the absolute level best. So check it out. This is Magisterium AI, their new scholarly mode. You're going to dig it. Magisterium.com, that is Magisterium.com. It comes with my personal guarantee. All right, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, November 7th in the year of our Lord, 2023. November 7th is actually the anniversary of the opening of the Third Council of Constantinople in the year 680, dealing with the Christological heresies of the era. November 7th, by the way, is also the birthday of both Albert Camus and Billy Graham. Now that is a shared birthday party I would have loved to be at, right? Like one of the fathers of existentialism and the most famous Christian evangelist in America. I would have loved to have been a fly in the wall in that conversation. Alas, so far as we know, never happened. But in any event, we begin this week with angling for interviews. So, in 2010, there was a fascinating senatorial contest in the state of Nevada, which pitted incumbent Senator Harry Reid, the Democrat, against a far-right Republican and Tea Party stalwart by the name of Sharon Engel. Now, Engel, early on, was way up in the polls, but then a cycle of media coverage, most of which exposed her somewhat fleeting grasp on the detail of policy issues, proved fatal for her candidacy, and she eventually lost. At one point, discussing all of this, she gave an interview, an interview to Fox News in which she famously said, we needed the media to be our friend. We wanted them to ask the questions we wanted to answer. Now, that set off a cycle of derision that lasted for weeks in the United States. It became fodder for late-night TV, you know, comedy shows for a long time. It even memorably ended up being a scene in the HBO series The Newsroom, in which fictional news anchor Will McAvoy, played by Jeff Daniels, who in the narrative universe of the show was a lawyer and former prosecutor, quoted Sharon Angle saying that she wanted only the questions she wanted to answer, and then McAvoy said, don't laugh, I felt exactly the same way about the bar exam. Now, look, you know, all of this was at the time considered very funny, but you know, if you want to be serious about it, what public figure on the face of the planet would not want to engineer situations in which the press is going to ask only those questions that that public figure wants to answer, right? I mean, that's PR 101. And if you want an example of the public figure on the planet today who has raised the Sharon Angle strategy to a fine art, it unquestionably has to be Pope Francis. As we have talked about on this show before, the interview has become a cornerstone of the Francis papacy. Now, you know, I've tried to figure out how many media interviews Francis has given since his election. The truth of it is, Nobody actually knows. The conventional estimate is about, oh, 250 or so. Now, if you consider that Pope Francis has been Pope at this point for about 730 weeks, what that means 
is that he's given one media interview basically every three weeks of his papacy. This is like, you know, we used to say of John Paul II that he had beatified and canonized more people, not only than any previous pope, but than all previous popes combined. You now have to say the same thing about Pope Francis in interviews. He has given more than all previous popes combined. And the most recent example came this past week. Pope Francis sat down for a primetime interview with Rai, that is the national broadcaster in Italy. So it's like the BBC of Italy. It was aired Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. local, an hour-long special conducted by the editorial director of TG Uno, which is the most important nightly news program here in Italy. And it followed a fairly consistent pattern with many of these interviews that Pope Francis has given, in that the Pope tends to pick journalists and he tends to pick venues who are going to give him the opportunity to answer the questions that he wants to answer without the nettlesome, annoying problem of follow-up questions <laughs> that, you know, might prove a little irksome. And so, now, this interview covered a wide variety of topics. The Pope talked about Gaza, and he talked about Ukraine. He talked about the recent Synod of Bishops. He talked about women deacons, you know, and any number of issues beyond but the most interesting portion of it all, I think, came in the discussion of clerical sexual abuse. So the interviewer reminded Pope Francis that he had said publicly that when he was elected Pope, his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, had given him a couple of large boxes full of files about problems the church was facing. And this interviewer asked Pope Francis where he was in dealing with all of those problems. Francis said, well, one of the big problems was clerical sexual abuse. He praised Pope Benedict for being courageous in dealing with it and said that basically Benedict took it as far as he could and then handed it over. He said clerical, that he said abuse, whether it's sexual or psychological or in whatever form, cannot be tolerated because it's contrary to the gospel. And then he said, we still have a, a lot of work to do. There are still a lot of injustices. Now, at that point, the interviewer shifted gears, asked Pope Francis about what was the most difficult moment in his papacy. Francis started talking about the outbreak of the Syrian civil war when he was elected, and they went off, they went down a different track. Now, the thing of it is, let's imagine that you're a journalist who covers the Vatican, and the Pope has just said, that there are still a lot of injustices when it comes to clerical sexual abuse and a lot of work left to be done. What is the obvious low-hanging fruit there in terms of the follow-up question? Well, I would submit it should have been, well, Holy Father, given what you just said, how do you explain your about-face on the question of Father Marko Rupnik this famous, you know, Slovenian artist, priest, who's been accused of sexual abuse by about 25 adult women, mostly nuns, stretching over a 30-year period. You know, how do you explain the fact that initially you declined to lift the statute of limitations in order for him to be prosecuted, but then you decided to do it, apparently in reaction to public pressure? Like, 
do you have regrets? Like, how do you make sense of, you know, what you've done on this case? Because it is unquestionably the most infamous, most talked about, most celebrated clerical sexual abuse case of the moment. It would be fascinating to know what Pope Francis would have to say about why he waited so long to lift the statute of limitations and what he hopes will happen now. It would be fascinating to know how he explains the fact that just over a month ago, he gave an audience to one of Rupnik's premier defenders, a woman who was a collaborator of Rupnik and a key ally who was called the charges against him a lynching. How does he explain the fact that his own diocese of Rome recently gave Rupnik's center here in Rome, the Centraletti, a clean bill of health saying there's no problem and raised questions about the procedure behind the fact that Rupnik was briefly excommunicated in 2020 for absolving an accomplice of sexual crime in the confessional and the fact that very recently Rupnik was welcomed back with open arms into a diocese in his native country of Slovenia after he'd been kicked out from the Jesuits. I would love to know what the Pope would have to say about all of that. Unfortunately, the journalist in this interview didn't ask. Now, why is it that in all these Pope interviews, these kinds of obvious follow-ups just don't get asked? Well, I think part of it is Pope is not a politician. He's not a CEO. He's a religious or spiritual leader. There's a kind of natural deference that attaches to that. Part of it is these interviews know that the Pope is doing them a huge favor, right? He's handing them a ratings bonanza. And nobody wants to put him in an embarrassing position on the back of that. I think part of it, too, is that most interviewers see Pope Francis as a moral hero, one of the leading champions of the underdog on the global stage, and they just don't want to cut him off at the knees, right? They don't want to be perceived as pandering to his critics. But however you explain it, you know, the plain fact of the matter is that Pope Francis very rarely has been put in the position in these interviews of having to explain how the broad principles that he articulates apply to his handling of specific cases. In other words, this is a pope who routinely rails against clericalism, and yet you could argue that he benefits from it significantly in his interactions with the media. Look, I think you have to give Francis tremendous credit for opening himself up to these kinds of exchanges. Sooner or later, the novelty of these Pope interviews is going to wear off, and some of the harder questions are going to be asked. In the meantime, all we can do is sort of think about, well, what might have been. All right, second up this week, Scooby-Doo, Dubai. You say hello, I say Dubai. One of the points that Pope Francis covered in this interview with Rye is confirming that he is going to be traveling to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates from the 1st through the 3rd of December in order to take part in the COP28 summit. That is the UN-sponsored summit on climate change in order to try to lay out the case that Pope Francis recently made once again 
in his follow-up document to Laudato Si, that was his 2005 encyclical on the environment, very recently he issued Laudate Deum, a follow-up document, an 11-page document, in which he devoted two separate sections to the COP summits, arguing that these summits need to take more aggressive action on climate change. This will be the first time a pope has taken part in one of these COP climate change summits. The Pope flirted with the idea of doing so in 2021 during the COP26 summit in Glasgow. He had sent signals he intended to to attend. The Scottish bishops had even announced plans for that trip. In the end, he backed out. That was in part because, of course, earlier that summit was in November 2021. In June of that year, the Pope had had surgery to remove like half of his colon. And listen, as somebody who recently had an esophageal surgery, I can tell you that four months after you have a surgery like that, you are not necessarily really up for a major international trip. But part of it too was there was a concern that Glasgow was going to be a flop. And frankly, the Vatican didn't want the Pope's fingerprints to be all over a failure. You know, we will see what happens this time in Dubai. We should say that the Pope has a track record in the United Arab Emirates in 2019. He went to Abu Dhabi, where he signed this now famous document on human fraternity with the Grand Imam of the Al-Hazar University and Mosque in Cairo. So it's a platform that he has used on multiple occasions to try to address issues of broad international interest. There is some concern that this summit might also end in failure. Let's remember, it is being presided over by Sultan Ahmad al-Jabbar of Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates. And Sultan al-Jabbar is, in addition to being the president of the summit, he is also the president of the National Oil Company in the United Arab Emirates that has just recently announced plans for a major expansion. Some critics are asking, can an oil industry executive really preside over a meeting in which significant limits on fossil fuel consumption are going to be adopted? I mean, you know, we will see. It is a kind of high wire act because on the one hand, by going, the Pope clearly wants to get across how important, how critically important, he believes action to combat climate change is and, you know, wants to be on the right side of history. On the other hand, if this summit ends up as yet another perceived failure, then it is possible that that could compromise the perceived diplomatic and political effectiveness of the papacy. So Francis is, in a sense, rolling the dice. But let's face it, he has been a maverick and a risk taker from the very beginning. And so this is utterly consistent with the way he has operated. And, you know, we will see what comes out of it. By the way, my wife, Elise Ann Allen, is going to be covering this trip. We actually have to truncate, abbreviate, cut short. I would almost say abort to some extent. Our trip to the United States. We were planning to be in America from the 15th of November to December 1st. We now have to come back early in order to make sure that Elise is on the papal plane to go to Dubai. 
So memo to Pope Francis, you're going to be costing us some big bucks because we got a great rate on our airfare and now we have to scramble all of that in order to be back for your trip. So, you know, in the spirit of Christian charity, if you wanted to, you know, do us a solid, help us out, we'd be all I'm saying. All right. Third up this week, we've got engaging Iran. So as we all know, the war between Israel and Hamas on the Gaza Strip is continuing in all of its brutal intensity. As we speak, Israel claims that it has encircled Gaza City and is preparing for a new, more intense phase of its ground offensive on the Gaza Strip. The health ministry in Gaza, of course, run by Hamas, is claiming that almost 10,000 people on the Gaza Strip have been killed so far, mostly victims of Israeli air assaults, but also as a result of various ground offensives on the Strip. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has been engaged in whirlwind diplomacy to try to prevent this from becoming a wider regional conflagration over the weekend. He was on the West Bank, where he met with Palestinian President Abbas, and he was also in Iraq, where he held meetings with officials there. As we speak, he is currently in Turkey, where he's meeting with Turkish officials. Now, amid all of this activity around Gaza, one of the interesting bits of subtext that has emerged is Iranian outreach to the Vatican. A week ago, so last Monday, the Iranian foreign minister requested a phone conversation with British Archbishop Paul Gallagher. He is the Vatican Secretary for Relations with States, basically its foreign minister. The two men discussed the conflict in Gaza. It was an occasion for Gallagher to reiterate the Vatican support for a two-state solution, that is, sovereignty for the Palestinians, security guarantees for Israel, and a special status for Jerusalem and the holy sites. Flash forward a week this past Sunday, again, at the request of Iran, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi had a phone conversation with Pope Francis in which the two leaders, that is the Pope and the Iranian president, discussed the Gaza conflict. Now, at one level, it is very interesting to compare the readouts given by the two sides out after this conversation. So if we look at the statement that came from the office of the Iranian president, what it indicates is that President Raisi used this opportunity to refer to Israel's targeting of civilian infrastructure in Gaza as the biggest genocide of the 21st century. He referred to it as a crime against humanity and, you know, urged the Pope to condemn it all. And, you know, further insisted that what is happening in Gaza indicates kind of the failure of Israeli policy. President Raisi also according to the readout from his office, told Pope Francis that all three of the Abrahamic religions, that is, Islam, Christianity, and even Judaism, he insisted, would condemn what Israel is currently doing in Gaza and would be on the side of the Palestinian people. 
He also, according to the readout, used the opportunity to say that a recent attack on a Greek Orthodox parish on the Gaza Strip, the oldest Christian church on the Strip, St. Polyphorus, illustrates how it's not just Palestinian Muslims, but also Palestinian Christians who are being brutalized by Israel's military operations. Now, if you look at the Vatican readout, absolutely none of that was in it. What the Vatican said simply was that the Pope and the Iranian president had discussed the situation. The Pope repeated his calls for a ceasefire and for humanitarian aid in Gaza. And then it quoted at length from the Angelus Address that Pope Francis had given earlier last Sunday, in which, in the name of God, he once again issued his appeal for a ceasefire. So clearly the two sides had slightly different reconstructions of the content of this call. But here's what I think is really interesting. There is no question that Iran is a key player in what is going on in the Gaza Strip, in part because Iran is, may well be the difference between whether this remains a localized conflict between Israel and Hamas, mostly on the Gaza Strip, or whether it becomes a broader regional conflict. We know that Iranian-linked militias have already launched attacks against U.S. targets in Syria and Iraq. There is concern that this is going to widen out and escalate. Blinken, when he was in the West Bank in Iraq over the weekend, told Iran not to do it. Thing of it is, Iran and the United States don't have any direct diplomatic contacts. They have not had diplomatic relations since the hostage crisis in 1980. The truth of it is, in terms of institutions that historically are part of the West, the only one that really has solid diplomatic conversations with Iran is the Vatican. They've had diplomatic relations since 1954. And here's another point I would remind you of. President Raisi in Iran, he's not just a head of state. He is an Islamic cleric and a jurist. He claims the title of Ayatollah, although some people have disputed that, but there's no question. He is a clergyman within Shia Islam, and he's their equivalent of a canon lawyer, right? He's a specialist in Islamic law. So that when he and the leadership structure in Iran engage policy issues, they don't do it just from a strictly political point of view. They're also bringing a theological framework. Now, here's the thing. When other Western leaders might try to engage Iran, like you know, Rishi Sunak in the UK, Emmanuel Macron in France, they are not talking theology with the Iranians, in part because they would be completely out of their depth. They would have no idea what they're talking about, but also because concepts of church-state separation in Western societies just mean that elected heads of state can't, or heads of government can't do that, okay? But the point of it is, you're never going to have a meaningful conversation with the Iranians that doesn't involve theology because Iran is a theocracy. The Vatican, therefore, is about the only institution, again, historically located within the Western world, that has the intellectual and spiritual capacity to engage the Iranians on their own level. What all of this means is that if there is going to be a successful effort to prevent a wider regional conflagration, to convince Iran to stay out 
of this conflict, or at least not to escalate it, it is quite possible that the only institution on the global stage that has the wherewithal, that has the, the bandwidth to be able to pull that off is the Vatican. I think it is instructive. Both of the conversations we've talked about, that is the Iranian foreign minister with Archbishop Gallagher and also President Raisi with Pope Francis have come at the request of Iran suggesting they know it too. All right, finally this week, church and state. As I said at the top, church-state relations in Italy are forever fascinating. Let me just briefly tick off four things that have happened in recent days. Number one, the Italian government facing a severe debt crisis and having to present its budget for 2024 has announced a crackdown on car sales to Vatican personnel. Under the current legal framework, if you hold a Vatican passport or you are an official of a Vatican office and you buy a car in Italy, you're exempt from sales tax. Now, what Italy is upset about is a traditional scenario in which a Monsignor in the Vatican has a cousin who needs a car. And so he goes to a car dealer and waves his passport and gets an exemption from the 22% sales tax. So if he's buying like a Jeep Wagoneer, for 40,000 euro, there's a 22% sales tax here in Italy. That means he can save his cousin 8,400 bucks. Italy is, you know, understandably a little ticked off about that. They've announced a crackdown, but let me just warn you, there is a great history in Italy of the government announcing crackdowns like this and never following through. We'll see what happens. Second, the Italian Bishops' Conference recently sent a letter to church-run entities in Italy that are mixed use, that is commercial and non-commercial, warning them that they might have to pay property taxes going forward because the European Union has ruled that Italy can no longer exempt church-run entities from paying property taxes if they are mostly commercial. What they're thinking of is a situation in which you've got like a hotel run by, a, well, owned by a religious order where it is almost entirely for profit, but maybe there's a little chapel in there where there's a mass celebrated once a week. And on the basis of that, they have claimed exemptions from property taxes. The estimate is that if Italy actually enforces these past-due tax obligations, the church might have to fork up somewhere between 3.5 and 11 billion euro. We'll see. All right, third, there is a parish near Turin that has been fined 100,000 euro for using a radio frequency to broadcast their mass for shut-ins that allegedly belongs to the Italian military. They've appealed. We'll see if they actually have to pay. And finally, this past weekend, a Tunisian migrant who was using a plug-in in one of the metal detectors in St. Peter's Square to try to recharge his cell phone was arrested by Italian police under a provision of the 1929 Lateran Pax that says that while St. Peter's Square is technically Vatican sovereign territory, Italian police can enforce Italian law in that area. Look, bottom line here is, like, church and state is a complicated business anywhere, but in the Pope's own backyard, the most Catholic country on earth, culturally and historically, the thorny issues you get into just never in. All right, you can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Again, cruxnow.com. 
Do be watching our site for full coverage of the Pope's upcoming trip to Dubai. In the meantime, we will be back here next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a safe and blessed week. We will talk to you again very soon.